Lucasfilm at a point in time when it was just prior to the release of The Empire Strikes Back. They were preparing for the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I had the, the fortuitous um, opportunity on my first day to actually see Steven Spielberg, who at that time was screen testing for Raiders of the Lost Ark. How did SpongeBob find his way onto the NFL field? Why is Lego taking the fashion world by storm? Where did all that Baby Yoda merch come from? And why are people going crazy for Captain America pajamas? We explore what makes certain consumer products stand out above the rest thanks to a little thing called brand licensing. Welcome to the Licensing Mixtape, a podcast from License Global. Welcome to the Licensing Mixtape. I'm Patricia DeLuca, Managing Editor of License Global Magazine. And today I'm joined by Ira Friedman, who is the VP of Licensing at the Tops Company. Welcome, Ira. Thanks very much, Patricia. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great. Looking forward to chatting with you. Same here. So, Ira, um, we have something in common. Um, We both started out in publishing, working in the circulation department. Um, How did the circulation department eventually lead you into licensing? So yes, I did start in, in magazine circulation, and as you say, it's it's numbers, and it was got gotten kind of boring for me, and I thought it would be much more fun to be on the other side of the equation, where the magazines themselves were created, and so I was able to find an opportunity with a small publisher, a company that was publishing some fan magazines, science fiction, and para. Starlog, Fangoria magazines, and I joined them as an assistant publisher for a couple of years and, and really took a lot of satisfaction in, in creating products themselves. So it was really getting on the other side of publishing that's what sort of set me off on my career in product and merchandise related projects. And that did lead to an opportunity to work at Lucasfilm in the early 80s. And that was a uh, the result of the fact that I wanted to start creating some products on my own. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was young and fearless and thought this was a a good time to kind of branch out, try some things on my own as a publisher, came up with an idea that uh, involved a magazine combined with a catalog for Lucasfilm to use to merchandise its licensed goods. And I pitched this idea and met with Lucasfilm, Um, didn't really have any contacts there or any prior connection to the place. Obviously, I was very familiar with Star Wars, which had come out a number of years earlier. And they said to me at the time, Ira, we like this idea very much. We'll get back to you. And I just waited and waited. And one day I got a call back and they said, well, you know, we like the idea, but we, we actually like you better. And so um, we'd like you to come out here, maybe, you know, get to know us a little bit better. So so what did I know? I thought, you know, they sent me a, a plane ticket prepaid and put me up in a hotel. And I spent a couple of days just chatting with the team over there. And at some point, shortly thereafter, they offered me the opportunity to come work for them. And so it was not something that was really on my agenda. I had no desire to leave New York and move to California, but I did and I had no regrets, frankly, because it was a wonderful opportunity to get involved with Lucasfilm at a point in time when it was just prior to the release of The Empire Strikes Back. Wow. Uh, and they were preparing um, for the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was in early, early pre-production. Uh, I had the um, 
the fortuitous um, opportunity on my first day at the company to actually see Steven Spielberg, and uh, who at that time was screen testing for Raiders of the Lost Ark and had various um, actresses coming in um, to audition for the role of Marion Ravenwood, character in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So at that point in time, uh, I was totally smitten with the idea of living in California, working on the in the film business, but really on the merchandising side. And uh, I never looked back. So I had a number of assignments during the course of my of my stay at Lucasfilm. Um, I was able to develop lots of products mm -hmm. for the company, um, and uh, this was around uh, the official Star Wars fan club, which I had a big part in pulling together and orchestrating. And uh, during the course of my tenure there, uh, we had hundreds of thousands of, of members, and we were developing all kinds of product apparel, uh, publishing goods, uh, collectibles, and it was really a fun, fun experience. I, so I was really focused there in the licensing division of Lucasfilm uh, for a couple of, almost a couple of years until I decided it was time to go home. It's time to go back to New York uh, and start some things on my own, which is what I ended up doing. Uh, until I came to work for Tops in, in 1988. Oh, wow. Just a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, a few years ago. Yeah, feels like that sometimes, right? Feels like yeah. that. So when you started at Tops, were you mostly focused on creating or strengthening its licensing program? Um, were there a few avenues you wanted to go down that maybe you couldn't do with Lucasfilms? Well, so... In between Lucasfilm and Tops, I started my own. I, I did start my own publishing company and mm -hmm. published a variety of magazines based upon movies, movie one shots we call them, right. uh, special edition publications, and we also were publishing a, a, a couple of hobby magazines, a magazine all about kids collecting stickers, which oh, was, okay. became a very successful thing and. And actually, what brought me to Top, the yeah. uh, I wanted to see if Tops would advertise in the magazine. I'd gotten to know Tops as a result of my experience at Lucasfilm, where Tops was one of the earliest licensees for mm -hmm. Star Wars and started up in 1977 with the rights to the Star Wars trading cards franchise. And mm -hmm. so uh, I thought, well, let me call on Tops, see if they'll put an ad in this stickers magazine, which I was publishing at the time. It was very very successful and, and most all kids and it was a, it was a great way of sort of united all kids interested in this hobby there was nothing else out there at the time so i went out there and uh, made a pitch try and get them on board as an advertiser and they ultimately passed but they said and i met the chairman at the time whose family started the business they said you know maybe you come to work for us and long story short, uh, within a year or so, I was working at, 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 at Tops. wasn't part of the plan, but it was something that seemed attractive. And they said to me, well, we want you to be the director of new product development. Okay. And I said, well, wow, that's not, that's not really a, a title I was looking for. That's not necessarily a role that I had in mind. But then when I thought about it, I realized that all I've been doing in 
most of my career is developing products. So most of those products prior were publishing related, but trading cards were a form of publishing in actuality. Mm-hmm. And so this wasn't all that far from you know what I've been doing for the bulk of my career up until that point. And so it was through Tops working in product development that ultimately brought me into the licensing circle, if you will, because most of the products that the company were, was creating were tied to licensing. Mm-hmm. Um, Tops has been one of the really pioneering companies in the world of licensing, um, going back to the the, the 50s uh, when the company was licensing things like you know Hopalong Cassidy uh, from Disney, actually one of the earliest licensees of Disney, and then in the 50s getting the rights to Elvis Presley, and and in the 60s the the Beatles. And and it goes the list goes on and on. Batman in the 60s, E.T. and Michael Jackson in, during his heyday. Mm-hmm. So um, licensing became really an extension of product development. There was a person who was at Tops for many many years, was the face of Tops for decades, and his name was Cy Berger. And and Cy was um, with the company for his entire adult career. And at some point was sort of getting to a stage in his life where he, he didn't want to travel so much anymore. He wasn't looking um, to continue at the same pace he was. And he brought me to his office one day and said, Ira, you should incorporate licensing into your product development responsibilities. And so that sort of set me on a on a path that you know made licensing a more sort of pronounced part of my responsibilities. And so it was through the experience at Tops, which has been now over 30 years, that I was afforded the chance to get involved with dozens, if not hundreds of different licensed intellectual properties, uh, travel around the world, meet some wonderful people, uh, be a part of this industry that I've grown so fond of over, over all this time. That is an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that um, and bringing, once again, publishing and licensing together because when you mentioned about um, trading cards, it's a very intricate part of publishing because you know everything that you would maybe put on a eight by 11 piece of paper all of a sudden gets shrunk down and it has to be precise and everything has to be just so for it to be a great collectible item. Right. And also, while you were at Tops, you were able to work again with Star Wars. You were able to get them back into the fold, or your, you know, in your world, maybe. You know, maybe yes. No, I, I must tell you, Patricia, that 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 is the subject of a, of a lot of pride for me, because mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's not all always that you can leave one position and retain that connection uh, as you go on your way, um, but. Thankfully, um, you know, I left there under the the best of circumstances. Uh, I did have occasions to connect with George Lucas while I was working there because more so than anything, George was very concerned about doing the right thing by the fans. He grew up as a comic book collector, reader. He understood uh, before any of the big studios really understood this 
how important it was to connect to your fans and to maintain a deep respect for them and never to take their their support for granted. And so, you know, it was uh, fortunate for me to, uh, in the role I had at Lucasfilm, to have had the opportunity to connect with George on numerous occasions because at the end of the day, he, he was very concerned about doing the right thing by his fans. And so, um, you know, it's just one of those things where, um, you know, the Lucas experience was a really fulfilling one for me, although I decided at that time, as I said, that there was a point where I wanted to get on with my life and do some things on my own. And mm -hmm. I did start my own publishing company, but I was fortunate enough to maintain that that friendship with Lucasfilm. And then when it came to Tops, it was a, it was a fabulous reunion of, of friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to this day, you know, we are at Tops the longest continuously running Star Wars licensee of all. There have been thousands of licensees that have been a part of the Star Wars merchandising phenomenon. But very, you know, there aren't too many that were around back in 1977, like Topps was, and are still with them to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the subject of some, you know, something that we're all quite proud of at Topps. So Tops works with a lot of brands, as you mentioned, Star Wars and MLB, like all the major sport uh, sports organizations. But also you work with uh, franchises like Garbage Pail Kids, which I remember from the 80s, um, late 70s, early 80s. I, I, I'm, I'm very fond of the of the brand. So what is it like working with a brand that has uh, deep nostalgia for for collectors or fans? And right. how do you keep something like that fresh? How do you still keep a brand like that relevant, in, especially in collecting where, you know, there's so much happening in that world and brands always being relaunched. So how do you, you know, how do you keep, how do you keep it in the public eye? So, you know, Tops has a long history of not only licensing outside IP, uh, as you say, whether it's sports or entertainment, um, but we have had a history of creating some of our own unique properties as well. And, and uh, one of the best examples would be Wacky Packages. Right. Parody brand started up in the 70s, which still exists to this day. Uh, and then the other, as you mentioned, the Garbage Bell Kids, which, beca which became a phenomenon back in its day in, in the mid 80s and the, the latter part of the 80s. And it was it was all a kid's thing. It was, it was in fact, it was a, a spoof of the Cabbage Patch doll phenomenon at that time. Um, but it, it, it sort of developed a, a course of its own and became one of the most successful trading card uh, properties of all time. And, um, but at some point, Patricia, you know, uh, after 16 series of guards, things started sort of calming down and, and we kind of put it to bed because there was clearly uh, a lack of interest at that point. People had had gotten their share of GPK, the anachronism we, we use. And mm -hmm. so um, we kind of stopped it and only years later realized um, that there was still a community of people out there who grew up with the brand who felt that there was uh, an opportunity to kind of reconnect with their childhood. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and in its most recent incarnation, you know, starting back uh, within the past five years, we felt a, a very powerful resurgence of interest, um, mostly because all things in the night from the 1980s were kind of resonating again. Mm-hmm. The these you know these kids who grew up in the 80s were now young adults and adults and. They were looking for opportunities to kind of reconnect with their youth and relive some of their childhood memories. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we started uh, on a slow path to kind of bring the brand back. And, And that path still continues to this day, and it gains more and more momentum. Uh, as the years pass by. Um, what we discovered, of course, was that kids didn't know what the Garchville kids were, uh, mm-hmm. kids today. But the 40-somethings and the 50-somethings were, you know, now collectors and looking for ways to express their passion for collecting. And we started monitoring some of the eBay sales on these cards and and. Who would have imagined that a box of Garshpill Kids cards of Series 1, unopened, would sell last year on eBay for $25,000 for one box of cards, wow. uh, which you could have bought for you know 20 bucks back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that individual cards that were graded um, in you know super high-end condition featuring particular characters that were among the most favorite would sell at auction for $14,000, $15,000 for one card. Unreal. Uh, and so we began to develop this licensing program aimed at that older consumer and have done a whole lot of fun things with a bunch of great partners and some really uh, very supportive retailers like FYE, Hot Topic, Spencer Gifts. And um, the program as it exists today is is principally geared to collectors, um, but now the initiative is trying and bring the kids into this franchise, which is, of course, where it all started back in the day. Mm-hmm. And one one particular deal that I'm especially uh, proud of and excited by is uh, we were able to get R.L. Stein, the creator of Goosebumps, Mm-hmm. on board to um, write a series of children's books uh, based around the garage Belt kids aimed at the 8 to 12 year old middle school segment and abrams is our publisher and uh, the first book that was published within the past year made it to the new york times bestseller list for kids mind you this is kids mm-hmm. list. Uh, and we've had the second book out in the last pu- couple of months, which was doing very, very well. And then we've got a third one coming out in the fall. And and what we're finding is that parents who grew up with GBK are buying this book for their kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kids are slowly but surely finding their way to this brand. Um, and and so, you know, for me, sort of orchestrating a lot of this craziness it's been fun trying to kind of uh, re-energize, you know, reimagine. Um, don't go too far from our roots because we've got these, you know, adult fans who love the brand the way it existed back in the day. But the truth is, there were never stories behind GBK. It was they were kind of just one-off gags. 
mm -hmm. funny, silly, irreverent gags, but there was no character development or any any real stories for people to sink their teeth into. And that's where the Stein project uh, through Abrams is something that we feel is is putting us in a very good place to help bring kids into this franchise. Um, you know, and we're looking at other ways to, you know, engage consumers and bring in new consumers, whether it's got a couple of projects, um, one in particular that that just got sort of leaked. So I, I don't mind mentioning it um, because Amazon actually posted it up for pre-sale. So, of course, all of our hardcore fans out there are buzzing about it when we've yet to put out a press release on this thing. But yeah. nevertheless, um, it's out and we signed a deal with a another publisher called Inside Editions to yeah. produce a series of tarot fortune telling cards. Wow. Wow. In a gift box um, with a 128 page guidebook. And this is clearly not aimed at our normal adult collector base as as much as it's aimed at the tarot community mm -hmm. uh, not geared to kids um, not in the traditional size cards that that we produce which is you know two and a half by three and a half card size which is what collectors look for but this mm -hmm. is something a little bit out of the ordinary mm -hmm. um, and it's a chance to you know, bring on board um, women into this franchise because many tarot enthusiasts are women. Um, sure. And so we've pitched it to a couple of retailers who absolutely love the idea. And we've um, assigned a artist to create this product who is going to produce imagery in a style that's not exactly the same as our traditional garbage pill kids style. It's more in this mystical, surreal, fantastical kind of uh, art style. Um, and um, we think it's going to resonate not only with tarot followers, um, mm -hmm. but with GPK fans, because it's just another form of expression. And at the same time, we're hoping that it will help introduce the brand to a new segment of the population who might not have been familiar with it before. So. I'm having a lot of fun with this because it's a chance to, you know, play around a little bit and do some things that are not necessarily expected. You mm -hmm. know, um, they're hopefully will be considered innovative and and and, and different. Um, you know, I've stayed away as from just logo slapping to use the uh, the phrase in our in our business um, because I I you know. That would be that's the easy way to do it, but it's not necessarily the best way to do it. Uh, and and we're looking at this over over a long term. Who would have thought, you know, over 35 years ago that we would be talking about the garbage bill kids today? Uh, but then again, you know, back in those days, you know, the whole retro vintage nostalgia thing wasn't quite so evident the way it's become such an important integral part of the licensing industry today yeah it's its own it's its own category nostalgia or exactly. retro yeah so of course our challenge is tapping that nostalgia while at the same time bringing in a new generation of consumers and, and that's the challenge so ira i was also surprised to find out that tops has um a food and beverage category um you have ring pop 
as one of your um, brands. So I was wondering if you were planning to um, have licensing campaigns based around brands like Ring Pop. Um, so a lot of people out there, when they think of tops, they think of baseball cards. Right. Um, and some appreciate the fact that we also have been in the confectionery business for many, many years. As a matter of fact, when tops started, and uh, in 1938, um, it was called, by the way, that's way before my time, just for the record. Uh, <laughs> uh, that it was called, the company was called Topps Chewing Gum. It mm -hmm. was first and foremost a chewing gum company. And they produced, you know, little pieces of one penny gum. Um, and ultimately, developed uh, what's a very well-known brand today called Bazooka Bubblegum. And Bazooka Joe and his gang uh, came about it in the 50s. But it was foundation of being a confectionery company that ultimately led to the business getting into the publishing area through trading cards. So they put cards inside packages of gum as a way to sell more gum. It wasn't all about the cards. It sort of flip-flopped along the way, whereas, you know, people were buying more so these packs for the cards and less so for the gum. But it was the gum that started it all. And wow. so um, while people, some people know that Bazooka is a part of the Topps company and, and many don't and even fewer uh, appreciate the fact that we are one of the largest um, marketers of lollipops in in the world uh, in terms of non-chocolate confections. Tops is a huge player in in that segment, and so brands like Ring Pop, Push Pop, Baby Bottle Pop, um, Juicy Drop Pop. These are brands that are bestsellers at checkout at Walmart uh, around the world. Um, phenomenal franchises in their own right. And so, you know, there's been over the years a little bit of licensing here and there. We've, we've done some Bazooka Joe apparel and some accessories. Uh, we did a collaboration with Coach and they did some handbags and, and leather goods. And, and uh, most recently, we brought on uh, Lisa Marks, the licensing agent, to help us further uh, develop the confectionery side of of the company portfolio. So that is an area that uh, is, is certainly one we're looking at with with high expectations, and and you are going to see and hear more about that in in the days and years ahead. Yeah, that is something we're looking forward to. Um, Ira, thank you, you, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with uh, with the uh, listening audience for licensing mixtape. However, I, uh, on our final note, um, you have achieved what I think most Star Wars fans only dream of, and that is being an extra in a Star Wars film. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that came to be? Well, um, at the time, and this is going back to the period just prior to episode one of The Phantom Menace, um, we were publishing a magazine called Star Wars Galaxy. 
So again, I was able to continue doing publishing while, uh, you know, uh, it was part of my roots while I, you know, even though I was now working for Tops, not necessarily known for magazine publishing, um, but we we published quite a quite a few things and not to di- digress too much, but Tops had its own comic book division for quite a few years. Uh, and and so I was uh, the publisher of Topps Comics while the, that business was around. Um, but we were publishing Star Wars Galaxy magazine. They had other publishers around the world that Lucasfilm um, were doing business with. And at some point they decided to kind of bring all the publishing partners together and host, host a meeting at um, the uh, location um, of the studio um, that they were uh, filming the Phantom Menace in in London or outside of London, and so at some point I got an invitation to come on out uh, and be a part of this this publishing um, conference. And at some point they sent me a note saying, you know, what is your uh, waist size and neck size? And I'm thinking, what <laughs> what are they talking about? So I gave them the information they asked for. And then and at some point, just prior to leaving for this trip, I found out that they were building some costumes for some of the attendees and that we were going to be in uh, a scene at the very end of the movie, a big, big, big crowd scene. And so, um, you know, uh, to this day, I can't find myself in that scene. Uh, mm-hmm. So God knows uh, I'm in there somewhere. But just the whole experience of being on the set of a Star Wars movie uh, um, while they're filming. And this, of course, episode one was after a dry spell of something like 20 years when there was no new Star Wars films in theaters. And so to be a part of that was fun. You know, they sent me a picture of myself dressed in the costume Lucas did. And so that appeared on a uh, on one of the top star wars trading cards so that was also kind of fun to you know i've been involved with so many different card projects over the years and it's it's you know i didn't really have an opportunity prior to that to actually be on a card myself so that was fun and um so you know just to be a part of the star wars history in some small way is has been a real privilege for me and and to even maintain to this day uh, a connection to the company uh, that i once worked for all these years ago is something that uh, you know like i said I'm, I'm quite quite pleased and proud of and and god knows lucasfilm now in the hands of disney's Disney um, is going to be bigger and better than ever, and um, the the future has, doesn't look any brighter than it's ever looked uh, before because there's so much new content coming through so many different platforms geared to many different audiences and, and fans of all ages. It's a the brand is is you know to me it's one of the real gems. You know, this that is the ultimate entertainment brand out there. And so we're just happy to be a part of it to this day. Yeah. And from creating trading cards to being on a couple of trading cards, that's a really a full cir- cir- circle moment for you. Thank you so much for your time, Ira. And if you want to follow License Global on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Patricia. Nice to be with you. Same here.